You're listening to a Radio Stockdale podcast. Podcasts that are inspiring, interactive, and feature various discussions of leadership, ethics, and law. Welcome to Philosophy at the Movies, a podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me as always... Sean Baker. And today's topic is the 2003 film Shattered Glass. So this is a film that uh, tells the true story of a reporter named Stephen Glass. In the 90s, he was the bright, uh, up-and-coming big-name reporter for uh, yeah. the, the New Republic. And the, and the New Republic, as they exclusively point out, is one of the premier like political magazines in America. Like, they show, like, you know, when you're having, like, the C-SPAN or Meet the Press discussions with the different talking heads of politicians, they bring up, like, oh, it's torched in the New Republic issue this week. And yes. They pride themselves on saying it's the... It's the in-flight magazine of Air Force One. So this is the 90s. So I think they're even probably that Bill Clinton reads uh, the uh, the New Republic. And he, in glass, as we see, is their shining bright young star. He's their young phenom. Because like, all the reporters are all, they have a point out, very young in their 20s. They're not, you know, I don't think there's these, like a 30-year-old will probably be the old man of the group. Yeah. And... He's not only works with them, but he has does a lot of other stuff. He's written a bit for Rolling Stone, and uh, like they don't bring it up, but he even uh, had a little part in NPR. I think he did a uh, thing for uh, This American Life or one of their programs. So he was, and like you even see early on that he's constantly getting calls from all these groups, and he's like, "Oh, it's it's probably nothing." That's yes. always his thing. Yes, it's always his thing, and. He's also very pop because of he tells these grand stories. He is also very popular with everybody there. He he's always very nice to everybody. He invites people to parties, and he is particularly friends with these two women, um, Caitlin and Amy. Particularly, they go to a party of his, and Amy even realizes that he specifically set aside a. Uh, a coke for her with her name on it, and he's because he tells her she said like, oh, two couple of years ago you told me you don't like coke, cokes at parties, soak too much in ice so it just tastes like you're drinking water. So I kept this for you. She says I said that two years ago, <laughs> and he's always if you notice he's always complimenting people like the uh, receptionist like oh that's nice lipstick you got on or you know that's great perfume or I like your dress and he's always complimenting people. And he's in it. We see this as he's sort of vi- revisiting his old high school and kind of giving yeah. a lecture at his journalism class for the high school paper. And the teacher is beaming with joy, and all the kids are enamored with him. And saying like this, she says like this is somebody you should aspire to be once you graduate. Yes. And then sort of, and he talks a bit about his editor, Michael Kelly, who was you know these are all real people. Michael Kelly was the head of. The New Republic at the time, and he was talking about how he sticks up for his people, but he gets he does not get along with a guy named Marty Peretz, who's sort of the head mm-hmm. of the magazine. They clash a lot. Like there was this one, there was this one thing you see early on where 
Marty gets this rant about how there are too many commas in one of their magazines. So there, he makes everyone look, go through every page of the magazine and circle <laughs> all the commas. And he says, just show it to me. And I'll show you how it should properly be used. <laughs> yes. And then you see Kelly just sees that and he's frustrated. So they have a big argument. And then Kelly says, you're going back to work. The comma scandal is now over. Yeah. But as that's going on, you can tell the you know the conflict between them is growing, and w- another person we follow is a guy named Charles Lane. He is what he's been there for a while, but it's like he's the guy that does a lot of work, but he's not Glass. Everybody loves Glass because every time they you go if you've ever worked at an uh, even just a high school paper, there's always a thing of let's see what everybody's got. What do you get? What are you working yeah, it's on? It's called a pitch meeting. Pitch meeting. Yeah, and Glass is always the darling. Of the meetings, he tells yes. one, one of the first times we see it is he says talking about how this was after the infamous Savander Holyfield Mike Tyson fight where Mike Tyson bit Holyfield's ear off, so that was the hot topic. And he said he found some sort of I think it was a Christian radio sh- uh, station somewhere, and he, he called in there pretending to be an expert on biting, a psychologist that uh, specializes in human biting. He pretended to be that and took calls for an hour and heard all these crazy stories. And then the next, and while he does that, Lane is after him. And Lane says, oh, that's a tough act to follow. But immediately after all the laughing, he's kind of more serious about what he's pitching. And it's not like a big show. You can tell nobody really quite likes him. Yeah. But he finally has enough of Kelly and sort of says, you're out of here. And they put in Lane. Yeah. And it doesn't go over. Even Lane says, look, he's a friend of mine. This is not going to go over well. But then Marty says, do you want the job or not? Yeah, and you can see that you see a little bit of his family life. He's got a kid to take care of, so he's thinking, okay, this is going to be a lot of money, big opportunity. I can't say no, so he's unfortunately in that situation. Yes, so he takes it over, but everybody still kind of sees it as he's a, a, a careerist, an opportunist. He did it did it kind of a sleazy, backhanded way. It's particularly Glass. Yeah, yeah. and they even talk about Glass in his narration. Says, you know, it's it's still the New Republic, but it's more of a job now. Mm-hmm. And then, we, and then at the next pitch meeting, he tells this amazing story, it's called, it, it, which is published. It's called Hack Heaven. And it's, he supposedly uh, met this kid. He calls himself uh, the, the big bad bionic boy, a teenage <laughs> hacker. And he infiltrated this uh, website, supposedly, of this gr- uh, software company called Juped Micronics. And he basically took their website hostage and... The website had this meeting with him at this hackers convention, and they said, "Well, I'll just hire you on the payroll, you know, so you'll pick out the hackers, and so we won't have you bothering us." Right. So it's this big contract negotiation, and the kids, because he's like a fifteen-year-old kid, he's making all these goofy demands of like, you know, I want X-Men comic number one, I want a brand new car, I want a lifetime subscription to Playboy magazine, yeah, and pretty much they cave into almost all his demands, and then. He meets, and then after after the meeting, he he's dancing around at the hackers' convention, and they're worshiping him like a god. Yes, and that gets published. Yep. And I did, I did one thing I did want to point out. We see Glass early on have a little bit of a problem with Kelly. He told this other wild, crazy story of him sneaking into this um, republic, young Republican CPAC. Yeah, a CPAC, CPAC meeting, particularly for conservatives. Yes, and he sneaks in, and he, it's called Spring Breakdown, and they're 
he you see you see what he's telling he's sneaking into his hotel room and they're smoking marijuana drinking not very nihilistic about this future of american conservatism yeah but then they're also very drunk and then they bring a prostitute and sort of just embarrass her throw stuff at her yeah. and that gets published but there was there was it a detail in the story that uh uh Kelly recognized as not being accurate for that particular hotel uh, microbars in the room, yes. right? And uh, he realized that this particular hotel doesn't have microbars. So he kind of confronts him on this. And that is the first indicator yes. that, and, as he describes himself later in a, the novel he wrote based on his own life, yeah. that he's a fabulist. <laughs> yeah, and then, but, but the thing is... Uh, Glass comes in almost in tears saying, if you need to fire me, fire me. But I yeah. was wrong about that. I figured they they brought in their own yeah. mini fridge filled with booze. I just figured it was complimentary with the hotel room. Yes. And But he says, but you stand by everything else. Yeah. And he says, all right, that's fine. He figured, okay, that's just a small yeah. discrepancy. He even calls to make sure. He's like, can they do that? Can they bring in their own fridge? He's like, yeah, it's no big deal. So he figures yeah. everything outside of that is okay. Yes. Right. But now he gets this hack heaven, and it's another big hit. And then we follow along to Adam Pennenberg. He mm -hmm. works for Forbes Digital. Right. And his boss says, how did you not get this story? So he's kind of saying, like, you got to do a follow-up on this. But he's kind of saying, like, you got to be good on this because you got outscooped by the New Republic. Yeah. So we start, and so we just follow him. He's just doing basic search. He just does a Google search for Juke Micronics. Yeah. And then he, it's so, and it's supposedly, it's because in the, Article. It's supposedly this big tech company. Yes, you can't find a single thing about yes. them online. Yes, and he goes through checks, checks, check. He checks everything. He's then he, he uses LexisNexis, which was a big search engine uh, yeah. in the nineties. It's probably still around. He I'm checks not sure. Business but, records, yeah. tax records. He can't find anything. Anything on these people. And I like one of because he talks to his boss. He breaks down all the things he found. Was like, well, there was one thing I found that was true. And he goes, what is that? There is a state in the union called Nevada. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And so then they reach out to yes. the New Republic. And they have to have a sit down with Glass trying to say, like, we're having trouble. We want to do a follow-up. But, you know, the sources were having trouble finding. Yeah. Then Glass brings his notes. And then he has this. Lane is in these kind of phone interviews phone discussion phone meetings yes and he's knowing thing things that like he wanted to know he gets a business card from this agent that worked with the hacker and it's this cheap little business card that looks like you could do with microsoft word it doesn't yeah. look like a professional business yes, card. It, yeah and then they call a website uh the vo uh, line for the company and it just goes straight to voicemail, and it's only one line. And that's yes. one of the things they figure Yeah, they out. actually, I love that scene. They actually, he, he's suspicious because it's always going to voicemail. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't sound as if it is a, 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 a typical answering recording that you would have with a big corporation. So he, he, he suspects it's only one line, right? So he gets his compadre there in the room, said, I want you to call at the same time. Yeah. And they've. They do, and lo and behold, there's a busy signal. So that's fishy. That's definitely yeah, fishy. fishy. And then they can't say, well, where's the website for this? And they show a website, and it's this cheap little put-together website. looks like it's, for, if you look at it now, I think it, you can even see it online now if you type it in. <laughs> yeah. like, it like early 90s, very cheap, and this is supposed yeah. to be this elite software company. It looks <laughs> right. like a, for, a fourth grader 
with it any kind like, of computer skills put together. Yeah, it looks like somebody put it together on, on Blogger or something. Yeah, so they night. kind of, at that point, they even Glass breaks down and realizes that he thinks, he says, I've been had. Like, I yeah. jumped to the story, I jumped to conclusions, mm-hmm. and these guys you know, def- made, me, made a fraud out of me. And so Lane s- sees that, and he, and so they have a sit-down, but Lane later calls Forbes and calls the editor and says, look, this kid screwed up horribly. I just want to know what you're going to do, but just kind of like this is going to hurt this kid. He's even he's, he's trying still to look standing out for this up for him because yeah, it's right. still he's you know he's one of his people. And but it doesn't work the other way around. Glass is saying, "Oh, he was so mean to me. He yes. was taking their sides." I'll and all Christensen the, does a great job in that scene because yeah. he's just like this whimpering, crying, putting on this act for those two women who are just buying it hook line yeah, and sinker. everybody because everybody's on glass's side because he told them stories he knows everything about he's always nice to them yes and here's this guy they view as an opportunist for taking this guy yeah. their guy's job so they're all on his side but lane has to talk to glass saying okay well let's go out to these places and just see what we can salvage because we got to come up with the response yeah. to this because they're going to go forward right. and it's a response that we can look good. So he, he says, let's go to the this, site of this alleged convention yeah. and uh, maybe we can get some corroborating evidence here that we can use when we talk to Forbes again. Yeah. So. And then that's when things get even really, worse yeah. for Glass. <laughs> I mean, this starts, gets, it gets embarrassed. You almost get secondhand embarrassment for this guy. Yeah. They go to this place with the convention. Supposedly there were hundreds of people there. Yeah. And it's not a big place. It's not like, you know. The lobby is the size of the room we're sitting in right now. Yeah. And it's not like the typical, like a Marriott or something where they have this big ballroom where you can have a convention. Right. There's nothing like that. Yes. And he's like, he even says, Stephen. It was like, this doesn't look like it holds like hundreds of people. He says, oh, they were just coming in and out. Yeah. And, but the thing is, he says the convention was held on a Sunday. Yes. And then there were, one of the receptionists at the hotel was looking. Security guy. Yeah, and he says, was there a convention here on Sunday or something? Something. He's like, you sure it was Sunday? Yeah. And he says, we're closed on Sunday. <laughs> yeah. And then Glass says, oh, yeah, they, they were, that's what they had a big fight with. They were, he's still trying to make excuses. Yes. And then they go another place because they said one of the things they had was a sit-down dinner or right. something. Yes. Supposed to be at Sunday. a restaurant that was across the road. Yeah, and they go to the yeah. restaurant across the road. He says, "Is that the, there?" Is a, yeah. He looks at the sign. They close at three on Sunday. It's like yes. they had an early. And he says, "Oh no, they they." And he's, Christians is still trying to make excuses. Yes. And then Lane, you can just see the growing anger Lane has, and then Lane makes the decision to at that time suspend. Yes. Class. Yes. There's another thing we need to bring up because he tried uh, calling one of the guys from Palo. Um, from this uh, yeah. uh, juke my chronics and this guy who was calling from Palo Alto said like you know the story was a lie and he just shut him down yeah then right. he figures out that the line because he said well, that's a Palo Alto number right and then he finds out that Glass's brother is from there yes and then he realized Glass had his brother call posing as this guy yes and then that's when he decides to suspend him but then he says later on, because that thing starts up, and then he looks at all the other articles all the, from the past issues and realizes he's been doing this forever. Yeah. He's that, been doing this since he's been here, so he yes. fires him. Yeah, it's another great scene. He he goes to the, the display of all the relatively recent uh, issues of the New Republic that are on a, a, a series of shelves on this wall on their entrance right and yeah. he takes them all off all of them that have glass stories and uh some of them were cover stories yes and um 
you, you see visually there that there's not much left once he's sifted through and, and uh, found all the falsified stories. Uh, devastating for a, a, a journal that uh, portrays itself as, as being competent. Uh, in for, the in-flight magazine of Air Force One. Yes. And he's, it's a, but then Glass puts on his act again of like, you know, I, I'm not safe. I, you know, he thinks he's, he kind of hints that I might be considering doing harm to myself yes. or suicide. But Lane Desat, he says, he says, you know, if you can, if you have problems, you can sit down until you feel better. But I'm not going anywhere with you. And he says, hey, didn't you hear? He says, yeah, I heard. What a story. I yeah. love that little line. Yeah. But then later on, uh, one of the women, um, Caitlin, pick one of her, one of his friends, picks him up, and she sort of tears into Charles, like, you know, you're doing this to his psyche. Yeah, he made a mistake, but you don't need to be so harsh on him. Mm-hmm. And then that's sort of when Charles says. If this was anybody else, would you believe him if he said it was just one time or he just made a little honest mistake? No. Yeah. And he even says, like, look, you can hate me. You can think that I'm just doing this because to get all rid of all the Kelly loyalists who came after me, before me. Yeah. But he says, we're all going to have to answer for this. We yeah. can't. We, there's no excuse for letting this go on. And, and most tellingly in that scene, he, 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 he uh, addresses her as a fellow journalist. Yeah, Somebody, he compliments her, saying, you're a good journalist. Yeah. Why can't you be one? That- Why? You need to be one in this particular yeah. case. Why are you putting your journalistic credibility and your ex- professional experience to the side for this man? Clearly, it's because he's ingratiated himself to you uh, with intent of covering his tracks. Yes. He doesn't really have any great affection for anybody. The guy is essentially a sociopath. Yes. Um, but he does these kinds of things as a protective measure, setting up shields between himself and discovery. And, and brilliant, I have to say this for Hayden Christensen, a mm-hmm. brilliant uh, uh, portrayal of this man. And the, uh, the lengths he goes to, almost as if they are switches, that he knows he has to turn at certain times when he is getting close to being discovered. Uh, he ingratiates people himself with people when things are relatively normal and safe, just to kind of build up that barrier. But then, as he's discovered, he shows the crocodile tears. And, yeah, says, are uh, you mad? That's asks, he are you, yeah, and that's a that's a great refrain in this film. He's always he knows when he's getting close to being discovered. He always uses that. Are you mad at me? Almost as if he's his child. Yeah. They're wanting. He's wanting to get the parental response to that. The the. And the almost coddling response from his superiors that you would expect from a parent. And he's doing that intentionally. And then when that doesn't work anymore with Lane, because he's now seen the thoroughgoing nature, uh, sociopathic nature of this man, uh, then he, he goes to his last resort, this extremely distraught persona where he might be killing himself and so forth. Um, Lane sees through it. He sees that's not actually... Uh, it's not genuine. It's a complete act. And uh, he, uh, I think the actor who does Lane also does an admirable job of portraying that man's ability to restrain himself (laughs) in the face of this act and this attempt at manipulation. Uh, Extraordinary. I think actually he ends up being for me, the most interesting and, and main character in this film, as opposed to Glass. As, yeah. uh, he's thrown into that role of being the, the senior editor of this, this uh, journal with not very much experience at all because of that abrupt firing of his predecessor by the owner. 
and uh, at first he's a little in the swim about it, doesn't qu- not quite know what to do. But as interestingly, as he's confronted with this uh, 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 relatively emergency and dire situation, uh, it focuses him. And he kind of learns that role on the fly in the midst of this yeah. emergency. And it, he really portrays that quite well. And he ends up coming out at the end of that film yeah, cause the, a, as a leader. Yeah, the as very a leader. last scene. Because yeah. he's thinking like, okay, I, I, he thinks he's going to be in for a battle because of everybody who was friends with Glass. But he comes in the morning, the morning after he's fired him. And they've all sat down and they've gave this letter saying, you know, they're going to print for the telling what Glass did. Yep. They're all on his side. He realized they're all on his side. They give him a standing ovation, and that's greatly contrasted with the ovation that Glass is getting at this high school, Yes, which I'm still not even 100% sure if that's entirely in his head. He's just a man. It's a framing device. I think it is exactly in his head because I was asked, and I think that was a good choice on the part of the filmmaker because they start, it, it, it bookends the film. Um, it starts with this, this uh what I believe is a fantasy, this image of him in it, back in his, it's uh, Highland Park High School in, in Chicago, right? Back in his high school journalism class, being uh, allowed to uh, talk to the class and as a fine sterling example of a graduate, and this is what you want to be and so forth. And then by the end of the film, he's sitting in the, in the classroom alone as if it never happened. Yeah, And I think that is... Um, uh, that is entirely purposeful, and I, I, I think it's maybe representative of a little bit of delusion on his part, mm-hmm. but probably also representative of what he chose, what he lost uh, uh, by way of his uh, choices. Yeah, and this, for those who haven't figured out yet, this he was. This is a real story. Stephen Glass was a real person. And they talk about it early on, and I'm so, like I read about it. I was like, oh god, the jokes practically write themselves. He was looking for a career as a lawyer. After this. <laughs> I'm just like, oh god, the jokes just so yeah. so easy. Yes. It's too too low hanging yeah. fruit. But it's I, I've always checked every because I've seen this movie a couple of times now, and every time I watch it, I was like, okay, what's he up to now? Yes, and I and he's he passed he, the uh, got a bar exam, but right. I think many times he applied to become a lawyer. Yeah, but they denied it because of this. Oh yes, and. He's, he's, I think, believe now he is a paralegal. He is a paralegal. doing a lawyer. Yeah, doing research for a lawyer. I don't know even if I was a lawyer having him as a paralegal, whether I'd trust yeah, him. Because paralegals do the lion's share of the work for lawyers in terms of research. So, you know, with a guy like that, I mean, if, if he, he was my employee, I'd always feel like I'd have to double check him and so forth. And, you know, time's limited. So yeah, I don't even, I, I'm surprised re- he was hired. I remember watching... I, when I had the DVD earlier on, there was they, as an extra was the sixty minutes follow up they did after the movie came out, and they interviewed him. And this was just a couple years later because this was came out in '03, so this was just like five years yeah. after this. And at this time, he wrote an, a fiction novel called The Fabulist yep. about himself. Yes, and it's the story of this guy who gets by telling all these amazing stories, which are all lies. But in the end, there is a character that's supposedly Charles Lane, and that character in the book is portrayed as evil. Yeah. And it's still the case of, well, okay, I lied, but everyone else was so mean to me. Yes. And it kind of, when they interviewed Lane as well, and it just shows like, yeah, it's just the guy doesn't have any remorse. Like, it goes back to what you talked about, him being 
a sociopath. And there was this great quote. It might have been in the 60 Minutes interview. Mm -hmm. What Lane said, he said, We extended normal human trust to someone who basically lacked a conscience. We busy, friendly folks were no match for such a willful deceiver. We thought Glass was interested in our personal lives or our struggles with work, and we thought it was because he cared. Actually, it was all about sizing us up and searching for vulnerabilities. Yep. What we saw as concern was actually a content. And that great scene at the end of the film, the very last scene, when I think his true nature really comes out, it's, there is a sort of a legal sit-down meeting, and it's kind of very technical, where they're, it's Lane and the other side, you know, Glass, they're with his lawyer, and they're saying... We know you can't actually say you faked this, but we're going through everything. We need to kind of figure out what you what is completely wrong. And he says, I'm just going to run down a list of all of the articles. Yeah. And if there's something you say like, no, that's true, we'll go back and do checks. But yeah. if you don't say anything, we're just going to assume it's totally it's fabricated. Totally bogus. Yeah. And every article Single of his article. that he said, yes. Glass was silent. And Glass, he, he didn't frown. He didn't smile. He just had this blank stare. And I think yeah. that's the glass. That is the glass. And and the, the thing I found interesting, too, about uh, uh, doing further research and reading mm-hmm. about this as well is um, the amount of distrust this guy generated in himself. It's, 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 it's uh, not something that can be repaired um, because as people came to see his truly manipulative and sociopathic nature. It, it's all the way down. That's where he, that's what he is at his core. Right. Um, somebody said, and I don't remember who it was. They said, well, he's even trying to play contrition in order to make a name for himself. It's still all about Stephen glass. And I think as I was looking for uh, kind of philosophical lessons to, um, take away from this film or, or relating it to philosophical literature there's there's a, a, a huge body of literature on deception and lying and uh, uh probably the most famous book in in the genre is by Cicely Bach and it's called On Lying and one of the contentions they make about um uh, the corrosive um uh, effects of lying is that it, it invariably works because it, it happens in a context where there is a presumption of veracity between people. People tend to t- think um, that the pe- person they are interacting with is honest and wants to tell the truth, right? So you tend to take that for granted in a lot of cases. And the sociopath and the con artist, and in some professions, I won't say lawyers because you made the obvious joke, but in some professions. We'll um, say politicians. That's another easy Politicians and car salesmen. Got to throw them in. Um, But uh, in some professions, the temptation is kind of great there to take advantage of of that presumption of veracity, right? Um, Still, uh, in those professions, there's typically, uh, and this includes journalism, by the way, there, 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 there tend to be ruling uh, codes of conduct that um, um, people in leadership roles take great pains to instill in their organizations for the very reason that um, even a small amount of deception and lying is tremendously corrosive of that trust that is uh, 
essentially at the fabric of human civilization. And you, if you have too much lying and too much deception, you can't fix it. And this is what I think essentially uh, uh, drives Lane. It, not only his taking offense at personally being deceived and lied to, but the fact that this guy is doing this in the name of the institution he runs and in the name of the profession that they all are a part of, central to that profession, the, uh, as it were, duty, obligation, sworn obligation in some cases, to you know, tell the truth and only the truth and, and not elaborate upon things and certainly not tell out, out lies. Because once you do that, it's not only the case that your individual journal or institution suffers, but the profession suffers. And that can have wide-ranging deleterious effects on society. And that's what he comes to recognize uh, as he grows in that role. And that's why he becomes more and more enraged with the fact that uh, Glass is doing this. Now, what's interesting about this is this isn't the first time this has happened with the New Republic. Yes. <laughs> uh, it, it's, uh, it's, or the it, last. It's not the last either. And this kind of thing happens in other uh, journals as well. And so it, it also brings up uh, interesting conflicts and in kind of the self-image that journalists have. One of the things that H.L. Uh, Mencken, a famous journalist, was famous for was saying that one of the roles of a journalist is to afflict the comfortable, he said, which was this kind of idea of standing up for the little guy and advocating and so forth, and in a way, taking on a, a political position. So uh, 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 venues like the New Republic uh, kind of prided themselves on that, kind of coming at uh, political and social issues from that perspective. So that introduces a risk because it's not, strictly speaking, objective journalism when you take on that role of afflicting the comfortable. Now, you, now you're, you're doing some sort of an advocacy or activism. Well, when you, when you start doing things like that, you do run, and that is how you run as an institution, you open yourself up to um, uh, kind of groupthink risks where all of the people in the, in the editorial room that are pitching uh, kind of agree uh, in, in political outlook. So they may be less inclined to be critical of stories that kind of uh, stroke those political biases they have. And you can see uh, Stephen Glass taking full advantage of that. The whole reason the CPAC story uh, 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 was able to be published was because it kind of fed into certain biases they had with regard to conservatives. And there's nothing more delicious than presenting conservatives as hypocrites, drinking and prostitution and so forth going on at, at the CPAC conference when out in front of the public, when they're giving their speeches, they're all about uh, rectitude and Christian values and whatever else, right? So he, he realized that, right? And he realized that also with the hacking story. Because what's, what's, what's more juicy for people that tend to want to stick it to corporations, especially 
uh, high-tech corporations these days. You're always wanting to poke those guys, right? What's, what's more fun than um, a story that has a, a kid basically holding them hostage, right, for a, a, a lucrative uh, career, white hat career. He goes from being black hat to white hat working for the corporation. Oh, my God, what a great story. And you can see they're just all eating this up in these meetings. And uh, he's, he knows that's the case. Uh, you know, it doesn't look like he's got any kind of ideological core himself. He's just looking for those inroads so that he can take advantage and get published and get famous and make a, a wad of dough in the process because he's not just writing for TNR, like you said. He's, he's getting calls from other journals all the time and making excuses. Oh, it's nothing important, blah, 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 right? Um, so, it, it, again, it's all about him, but it's arguable, but they open themselves to that kind of a risk because they were not scrupulous and careful enough in regard to that more core element, I think, of uh, competent journalism, the need to tend after the truth, be critical of the uh, uh, evidence that's being presented in the article, and definitely cross-check your sources and those kinds of things, right? Uh, so I think there's an object lesson there uh, in the risks that are involved with that more advo advocate mm -hmm. kind of journalism as to put the more objective kind. I mean, yeah, because it's, you've, I mean, the, the, one of the terms that's been almost born like the last five, six years has been fake news. Yes. And it's interesting because I, you, you brought it up earlier. I even looked up, okay, what's, what's the new republic up to now? <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, a couple of years just before this, there was a woman named Ruth Shayla. Her, her predicament was a little bit different, but she was plagiarizing. She yes. was stealing other people's work. And that yep. was just three years before Glass got caught. And then there, in 2007 in the New Republic, they, there was this uh, guy named Scott Thomas Beauchamp. Right. Who was supposedly an American soldier in Iraq, and it was called Shock Troops, and was yeah. all the telling hor horrific stories yeah. of uh, capitalizing on the Abu Ghraib stuff. I'm yes. assuming, yes, yes. But then it and was found capitalizing again on uh, a bias uh, in the editorial room, uh, basically mistrusting bias not only the U.S. government but the U.S. military, and uh, an expectation that there would be atrocities, right? And so forth. So then, he gets that opportunity. Abu Ghraib actually happens, right? But gets that opportunity uh, to uh, cash in on that. And um, it didn't take long for him to be discovered because yeah. people and, that were actually in Iraq with him were responding to, we saw nothing like this. He's yeah, and making then they, all this Eventually up. they had to publish something where they said, we can no longer stand by what we wrote. <laughs> yes, and literally yeah. nothing he wrote. Yeah. Yeah. And then if we can get off New Republic's back for a little bit, <laughs> they're not the only one. They're not the only but like, one. But I'm thinking of similar stories like the last decade or so. Um, Rolling Stone, 2014, um, published a, <laughs> supposed story about a, Frat, a fraternity in the University of Virginia where this woman was brutally raped. Yes. And then eventually they found out that nothing in the story was have any factual evidence. Yep. And that the people they described don't even exist. And they had to basically disown the story. Yes. There was, I think, I think it was the Columbia University of Journalism or something very prestigious fact-checked that article and said they failed in There's practically every, every aspect. aspect. And again, notice the bias. No, then there's also, a predisposition to want to believe that the, the that frat boys are partying. It's a stereotype, right? Partying, uh, womanizing, drunk and dangerous, and uh, 
uh, he probably pitched this story and people were nodding, you know, like they did in the film here, uh, vigorously in agreement with this and didn't adequately fact check it because it kind of stroked the biases. And even if, even if uh, somebody was telling uh, out crazy stories of them doing amazing things uh, on television, Brian Williams, uh, uh, he got himself in trouble because he told stories about him being, you know, face to face with combat during, <laughs> yes. you know, Tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, and that was found most of it to have been fake. And yes. I remember all the memes telling about him. You know, he's like saying that, oh, Frodo gave me the ring when I went to Mordor, <laughs> and all these things. So you see, it, you still see this, you know, stuff Happen. happening today. Yes. And that's why there is that term fake news. Yes. And I know even prestigious, because uh, I think around the same time the movie came out, I know the New York Times, you know, one of the most prestigious newspapers in the country. There was an, I forget the guy's name, but he got in trouble for the same thing Glass did. And so you think, like, if it can, you know, even, you know, New York Times, Washington Post had Woodward and Bernstein. You can think of all these prestigious journalists, like, if they can even fall prey to this, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, again, it shows shows all uh, the the frailties of the humans involved in the journalistic uh, institution. They're all... uh, uh, they've all got fairly large egos. You're writing and publishing because you want that adulation for having written a hell of a story and so forth, right? So um, they uh, sometimes allow that to take the front seat instead of taking on that uh, uh, that role of the journalist, the objective journalist that they have been trained, hopefully, in the journalism journalist, journalism uh, schools to uh, take as more important than advocacy or self-promotion but you, you see there there are human beings and uh, uh, these are good uh, instances uh, are illustrating instances in two respects one to show that any human beings and in, in any institutions and in any professions uh, are by virtue of being human beings imperfect and it pays I think to have oversight this is the second co- component uh, not only oversight by other vin- individuals in the institution, but codified oversight, where you have laws, you have codes of conduct, and uh, uh, do your best to provide objective uh, uh, oversight bodies. doesn't necessarily have to be in-house. It probably shouldn't be in-house. You should have, I think, citizens on those oversight committees um, that regularly... Um, um, scour through the uh, 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 results and the uh, what's the word I'm thinking of regularly scour through the products that are being generated by these institutions and um, you know that's it's in, in some time in some ways easier said than done because there are limited resources even as they made quite clear in the film um, even something as prestigious as uh, the New Republic and even the New York Times um, there are certain financial realities they have to contend with, right? They don't have unlimited pools of money to form these oversight committees and so forth. Nevertheless, it's their objective duty. They have to do it. Well, even Glass brings up a little loophole. He talks about how, in some cases, even with all the sources, and they talk about how you know, you got to go through a lot of fact-checkers. There are always a fact-checker at probably any sort of yeah. you know, newspaper publication. There are ways where the only source are the, the reports of the nor- the 
notes of the reporter. Yeah. So it is like you you have to take his word for it almost because so they, yeah. they can't check fact check yeah. anything else. Yeah, they can always claim. They can always mm-hmm. claim, well, the, my source asked to remain anonymous, right? So in that case, you, you only have the notes to go on. Um, and that provides an interesting uh, uh a dilemma for editors, right? So they have to they have to go on their read as to the reliability of that uh, that individual journalist. And again, this gets back to that presupposition of veracity that most human beings have toward each other. Um, it becomes particularly pronounced when it's people you're close with, either either in family or in working environments. You you tend to believe what this other person says, and. Um, because you do, when that other person is manipulating that presumption of veracity in their interlocutors, um, it hits particularly hard and angers particularly hard and is particularly damaging of that institution. So uh, some people make the recommendation in, in the journalistic community that on that basis you should either publish very few uh, articles that make uh, or have a heavy reliance on unnamed sources or none at all. And in the case of Glass, um, that would have excised large chunks of his stories, if not all of his stories, and it would have solved the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's one and one strategy. Even the reception it sort of brings up is like, well, you can't fake a picture. Yes. Even just pictures. And I would, even just curiosity, I down, uh, looked at a PDF of one of the more recent issues of the New Republic, and I still see no pictures. Yeah, yeah. It, still but, graphics uh, and illustrations, but no pictures. That's right. I and mean, it would help. I mean, if he had. Uh, if just he, one picture of the convention. Yes. You know, Although, I guess with somebody like Glass, you, you can imagine he would have called his brother, hey. Can you come over here and bring up, bring some of your friends and he yeah, create we'll the scene and or something? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. All right. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. This program is hosted by Radio Stockdale. There, you can also listen to their podcasts such as Ethics and the Naval Warrior and The Doover. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sounds. Reach episode dedicated to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found online at soundacinema.podomatic.com. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. Saying, I don't like sand. It's coarse, <laughs> irritating, and it gets everywhere.